This audio is brought to you by MuslimCentral.com. So inshallah ta'ala, first thing, first um, establish the rules that everybody has to sit here, except for the sisters. <laughs> but all you guys need to come as close as you can, inshallah. Uh, don't use the wall unless you need the wall. If you need the wall, then that's fine. That's, that's between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you're using the wall and you don't really need it, may Allah forgive you. <laughs> Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. The topic, you know, a lot of, subhanAllah, when I first saw the topic and I saw that it was working for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala despite the obstacles, I said this is probably going to scare a few people away because a few people are going to see this and they're going to think this has nothing to do with um, Ramadan. And, you know, I was just thinking about this and really, subhanAllah, thinking about the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his life. Um, many times when we look at the life of the Prophet وسلم, and I'm just going to be very frank inshallah ta'ala in this talk, we look at the life of the Prophet وسلم, and religion and spirituality as a whole, and we try to turn it into, we try to over-sensationalize it in the sense that we try, we imagine religion to just be prayer, we imagine the deen to just be lots of taraweeh prayer. You know, you want to get more religious, you read more Qur'an. You want to get more religious, you pray more. And although that is true to an extent, we ignore the reality, you know, the life of the Prophet ﷺ and really just the hardships that he had to go through. And especially when it comes to working for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I guarantee you that today, whether it's that there's a brother who's not here, a brother who's not here, because he went to the masjid one time and he had a really negative experience. He met a really nasty uncle or he met someone that was really judgmental towards him because of the way that he looked or because you know he was dressed in a certain way or because he had you know he was wearing an earring or he had something you know someone that was trying to come close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but they really got turned off from the masjid and I guarantee you there's a sister that's not here today because her experience with the masjid was that one time she went to the masjid and because her hijab was not the best of hijabs people told her off and she was basically sent home and in a way that she never wanted to come from the, to the masjid again. And because of that, they're turned off from Islamic work, turned off from the masjid, turned off from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you've lost serious potential. And the sin is on the person, and the sin is on the people that turn the person away. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, and we think about that for a moment. First and foremost, when you're talking about purpose, and this isn't about making the masjid youth-friendly. I know this is a mass youth center, alhamdulillah, I'm sure this is an extremely youth-friendly masjid. This isn't about that. The point that I'm trying to make is, the Prophet really dealt with some very, very, very tough and severe circumstances. And the reason being is that whenever you are looking for something, and whenever you're truly dedicated to something, you're willing to take everything that comes with it. And I'll give you an example. Nobody is going to get into med school and then quit med school because they don't like the way one of the professors talked to them. Because I worked hard to get here and I understand that at the end of this med school, I'm going to, I'm going to become a doctor, inshallah, and I'm going to go through this and I'm going to go through that. Nobody goes to work and says people who have money and people who, walk in, or who work in the office um, you know, tend to have really bad attitudes. So you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to stop working. 
I'm going to stop making money because I don't want to become one of those people who has money because they, they become jerks when they actually end up having money. Nobody abandons those types of things. Nobody abandons their dunya because of other people. I mean, let's face it, you're not going to, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's chasing their buck, every, you know, everyone's trying to make their living. If, if my living is dealing with the nastiest people in the world, right, we have this problem with, with, with sometimes where we've got Muslims, right, that, that own liquor stores, that, that work in the worst neighborhoods, that do the worst things. Why? Because at the end of the day, I'm carrying home, you know, a, a wad of cash. That's my purpose. That's why I'm here. That's what I want. Right? Even, and I'm not saying that, that we're in that situation. I'm saying that that's how we're programmed in a way. Right? When you want dunya, you're going to get it and you don't care what you have to deal with. So why is it that we expect the deen to be different? And when we look at the life of the Prophet look what he dealt with. You're talking about dealing with people that, that were rude and that weren't giving him respect and I'm not paid for this and I'm here to say, I'm a rahmatan lil alameen. I'm a mercy to all of mankind. I'm trying to make things easy for everybody and talk about not being appreciated. Abu Hurairah listen to this narration. says one time the Prophet was just walking. He's just walking. And a, and a Bedouin man comes up to the Prophet and he grabs the Prophet just imagine this, from the back of his collar. And he says, Hey you, give me from what Allah gave you. Think about that. And Abu Huraira says though, he pulled the Prophet's garment so severely that he left marks all over the neck of the Prophet. Talk about someone who's not being appreciated. Right? Talk about and you know, think about a king. Or think about someone who's who's made a contribution to the world. Right? We think because we did one thing in the masjid, or because we come to the masjid, you know, why am I not being appreciated? Why am I not being respected? You know, has any uncle ever walked, I hope not, I don't know how it works over here. So I walked up to you and grabbed you by your garment, and choked you because they wanted your shirt, or they thought that your thobe was really nice, so give it to me right now. And what did Abu Huraira say? said that the Prophet ﷺ took it off, gave it to him, and he smiled at him, and he kept on moving. Now, do you really think on the inside, a human being, other than the Prophet in that situation, would not think to himself, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? And you're talking about people being impatient with you? The Prophet and look at Abasa wa Tawalla, Surah Abasa wa Tawalla. He's trying to do his da'wah, he's trying to engage people like Uqba bin Abi Mu'it and Abu Jahl and, and the high, you know, the high players of Quraysh, he's trying to get them, trying to get their attention. And then Abdullah ibn Maktoum radiallahu anhu, and it's not his fault, he's blind. He's blind. Right? But just to show you, he runs to the Prophet kicking up dirt, his clothes patchy. He comes to the Prophet and he demands from the Prophet teach me from what Allah taught you. Surah Al Hujurat. Rasulullah, you're talking about not having your own private life and people don't leave you alone. Rasulullah in Surah Al-Hujurat, in essence when he goes home at night وسلم, after giving it his all, after serving you know, honorably for the entire day, he goes home at night, the few moments that he gets to spend with his wife وسلم, right? and let's face it, you know, people that work in Islamic work today, they, they lose that, they lose that. But look at the Prophet 
And people are not calling him on his cell phone. People are not sending him text messages. People are not emailing him. People are coming in front of his door, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and saying, hey, come on out, we need to talk to you. So you're talking about dealing with, with roughness, even from within the community. I'm just trying, and I'm not, I'm not hitting one subject right now. I'm just talking about as a whole. Let's look at what the Prophet ﷺ dealt with. You're talking about obstacles, Fisabilillah, right? So we've already established as far as respect is concerned. And the said, I mean, of course, the Sahaba loved the Prophet, ﷺ, but he also, you know, not everyone, not everyone uh, is like the Sahaba that would try to gather the water from the from the Prophet's wudu. Not everyone was like that. You did have the ignorant people too, you did have very simple people that, that walked up to the Prophet ﷺ and did stuff like that. Right? You see the Prophet's son's private life, that took a hit, right? His family time took a hit. Rasulullah and in the times of battle, you know, you would think that once you reach that level, and, and the tradition, the tradition of the people back then is that the leader never fights in battle. The leader never fights in battle, right? The leader stays back, and he never fights in battle, you know, and... and you see the Prophet ﷺ and he completely redefined that. And what did Umar al-Khattab say? Now we all know who Umar al-Khattab is, right? That's a warrior, right? He said when it would get extremely hot in battle, and the battle was going on and on and on and on, the Sahaba would actually start to hide behind the Prophet ﷺ in battle. They would fight behind him So he didn't sit back. He was on the front lines. He was always working, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And on top of that, you know what his escape was? You know, for us, sometimes we think our escape is from the deen. Right? Our escape is from the deen. I know how many people are waiting for Eid so they could go watch The Dark Knight Rises. It's like, alhamdulillah, finally, Ramadan's over. I get to go watch the movie now. Right? Our escape, our sense of, our sense of, of, of breath, you know, our just, just every, all of that comes from escaping from the deen. Like Taraweeh is over, you know. Finally, the Imam was taking forever. You know, I don't, I don't want to pray, but I, it's, he's taking too long. The halakha is taking too long. Why is he rambling so much? When's Sahur going to come? When are we going to? In most youth qiyams, when are we going to start playing basketball? Why is he talking so much? You know, let's. Our escape is from the deen. That's when we get our happiness. For the Prophet this qiyam. And our qiyam is not like, let me give you what the qiyam of the Prophet is. When Abdullah Mas'ud prays behind him, this is one rak'ah of the qiyam of the Prophet. He read Surah Al Baqarah, and Ibn Mas'ud said, I thought when he reached 100 ayat, he was going to stop and go into the court. And he is Ibn Mas'ud. He's someone who received over 70 surahs fresh from the mouth of the Prophet upon revelation. And he says, when, it, when he reached a hundred ayat in Surah Al-Baqarah, I thought that was it. Then he kept going, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. First rak'ah of Qiyam. And he got to two hundred, and I said, well, maybe he'll go into Rukur then. He finished Surah Al-Baqarah. Then he started Surah Al-Nisa. And he finished Surah Al-Nisa. Then he said, I thought it was over. He went to Surah Ali Imran. And he finished Surah Ali Imran sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And depending on the narrations, he even went further. Some, you know, some of the narrations actually indicate he went further. SubhanAllah, that's his first rak'ah. And that is his sense of relaxation. Qiyam for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was his escape. 
Salah was his escape. Right? You know, grant us a sense of peace, O Bilal. You know, that's, that was his sense of relaxation. I, I, said, I, I, said, I mentioned this last night, but I'll mention it again when I was speaking on the Ikhna Relief um, program. Aisha she was asked about the Prophet's Qiyam. You know, he, and we know, he used to make Qiyam until his feet would swell up and he would actually have to, like, he would actually fall over, his feet would actually become swollen. And he would be asked why he does that. He says, Why do you do that if you've been forgiven for all of your sins, past and, and future? Past, present, and future. He says, Shouldn't I be a grateful servant? So he loved Qiyam al-Layl, right? And Aisha radiallahu anha has asked, does the Prophet did he ever used to sit down when he did Qiyam? She said, yes, after the people broke him down. The people broke him down. Right? SubhanAllah, answering to the, to the needs of the people. Serving. You know, being out there. Working. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Not sitting back and enjoying the life of a king. The people exhausted him to a point where he had to pray Qiyamul Layl sitting down towards the end of his life. That was his sense of escape. So when we talk about deen and what we're trying to achieve through Ramadan, it's very simple. Be a doer, not a talker. You know, when we look at Islamic work, automatically what do we think of? We think of speaking. Right? My idea of Islamic work, my idea of being a good Muslim, I memorize Qur'an, I will go learn Islam so that I can start speaking at conferences and giving halakas in my masjid, that's it. But you know what, I've got news for you, the vast majority of the Sahaba were not speakers. Some of them did not have any, I mean, subhanAllah, there's one narration, and you're talking, the difference between a doer and a talker, someone who just works, somebody who just gets things done, brothers or sisters, and we'll give examples from the seerah of both. You look at Anas ibn Malik his narration about, about a man by the name of Limam ibn Tha'laba. And Limam is a Bedouin. And you know, when you read A'rabi, when you read A'rabi in the seerah, it's like, just, just think of like, I, I don't, it's someone, usually whenever someone makes the point to mention A'rabi, it's someone who came from a very rough climate, they've lived their lives, you know, in the desert, they're... I almost want to say, it's like, it's, it's almost like saying like a redneck came to a person, <laughs> started to ask them about Islam. Someone who really, really did not have any sense of diplomacy, that, you know, was, was looked at as, as rough back then, right? This man comes to the Prophet while he's sitting down in the masjid. He brings his camel. He doesn't even tie it up properly, right? He walks up to the Prophet and he says, are you Muhammad? He says, yes. He says, look, I'm going to ask you some questions and I'm not going to be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be diplomatic about it. I'm just going to ask you, so don't get offended, okay? Like, I'm just going to ask you some questions. Frank talk. And he's the Prophet of Allah, I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions. Just answer me and don't get offended, okay? He said, okay. He said, Ya Muhammad, O Muhammad, who raised the skies? Rasulullah was reclining. He said, Allah. He said, وَمَنْ نَصَبَ الْجِبَالِ Who pegged the mountains? The Prophet said, Allah. وَمَنْ بَسَطَ الْأَرْضِ And who flattened the earth in the sense to make it, you know, to make it, you know, a place of travel and a place where we can sustain ourselves from, uh, find nourishment in. And the Prophet said, Allah. 
And then look how the Imam addresses the Prophet ﷺ. He says, أَسْأَلُكَ بِالَّذِي رَفَعَ السَّمَاءِ وَنَصَّبَ الْجِبَاءِ وَبَسَطَ الْأَرْضِ I ask you by the one who raised the skies, and pegged the mountains, and flattened the ground, flattened the earth. أَاللَّهُ بَعَثَكَ إِلَيْنَا رَسُولًا Did Allah send you as a messenger to us? And the Prophet ﷺ, he sat up, he was reclining and he sat up and he said, Allahumma na'am, yes, by Allah. Then he kept on asking the Prophet ﷺ in that same manner, I ask you by the one who raised the skies, and I ask you by the one who pegged the mountains, and I ask you by the one who flattened the earth, did Allah command you to command us with prayers? He said, yes. Then he said again, I ask you by the one who raised the skies, I ask you by the one who piked the mountains, I ask you by the, ones who, by the one who flattened the earth, did Allah command you with zakah, to command you to command us with charity? He said, yes. So he went through the pillars of Islam. And he said, if that's the case, my name is Limam Nuthalaba, I accept your call. He went back and he jumped on his camel again. And he was in such a rush that Anas ibn Malik who says he didn't even bother untying it from the post. He just rode off with it. It's like, that's a really interesting character there. No sweet talk. He didn't kiss the Prophet's on his hand and say, can I sit with you, learn, you know, this. He just, he was in a rush to get somewhere. And Anas ibn Malik says, that night, by the time the sun set, everybody behind this valley of Nu'man, Wadi Nu'man was Muslim. Every single person. He got home and he went to his wife and his wife, uh, his wife says, you know, where have you been? He said, um, I, went to, I went to meet Muhammad and I have accepted Islam and I reject these idols. If you don't reject these idols, I'm going to reject you. I have nothing to do with you. She says, Ya Ulimam, Ulimam, but you're going to be struck with this and this and this and that, right? You know, you're going to be struck with this disease, you're going to abandon this idol and that idol. And he says, no, abandon it all. We believe in Allah, the one who raised the skies, the one who pegged the mountains, the one who flattened the earth. His wife became Muslim. Then his parents became Muslim. Then he went out and he started talking to everybody that night until everybody was Muslim by the time it was Maghrib. He's a doer, he's not a talker. Limam, if he was to give a khutbah, I guarantee you it would not be a very good khutbah. Okay? He's not, he would not be able to speak very eloquently. But he's a doer, he's not a talker. He, when it comes to, I mean subhanAllah, that's what the sahaba were. They heard the call, they got, they got to work. They got to work. Whether they were men, whether they were women, whether they were slaves, whether they were free, it was whenever they heard Allah and they heard the Messenger and they believed in it enough, they were ready. They answered to the call of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now why is this all relevant to our discussion tonight, especially as youth? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَمْ حَسِبِتُمْ أَنْ تَدْخُلُوا الْجَنَّةِ وَلَمَّا يَأْتِكُمْ مَثَلُ الَّذِي خَلَوْا مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ مَسَّتْهُمُ الْبَأْسَاءُ وَالضَّرَّاءُ وَزُلْزِلُوا that do you think you enter paradise? You just get into Jannah. You just get into Jannah. And يَقُولُوا آمَنَّا وَهُمْ لَا يُفْتَنُونَ As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Ankabur. You think you just say, I believe and you get in, you're not going to be tested? And Allah says, and then you hear about the people that came before you. They were struck by all forms of hardship, all forms of disease. You're talking about rude people. We're talking about people that would put camel guts on their back. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa having his neck stepped on in sujood. 
Yeah, someone might have walked up to you and told you something about the way that you're dressed or insulted you or, or bruised your ego in the masjid or in, or in the discipline of Islamic work. Did anybody ever come and step on your neck? We're in America. You'll sue the man, even if, even if he's your own uncle. You'll sue him. You're not going to let anybody come step on your neck. The Prophet ﷺ had his neck stepped on in sujood. When you hear about those people that came before you, that bore what they bore, but still work for the cause of Allah, and then you think you just get into Jannah? Right? You think you just say, I want to go to Jannah, and you get into Jannah? No. Just as we always, you know, we try to accuse Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of injustice many times. Right? We say, how could Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punish this group of people? How could Allah punish this person? How could, you know, we, we start getting concerned with other people's affairs. How could Allah punish this person? That's not fair. Why would Allah punish me? I'm a good person. And these, you know, we start thinking on the, in that regard. But it would also be equally unjust to say that the person who works their entire life for the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the person who prays, the person that toils, the people like Limam, the people like Bilal anhu, the people like the Khabbabs, the people like the Um Sulaims and the Um Haram, the people like Um Salama, that those people are not deserving of being treated differently by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Day of Judgment than people who have done absolutely nothing with their lives to, to deserve Jannah. That would also be unjust. Right? That would also be unjust on the part of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on the Day of Judgment, when you stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you say, I want Jannah, what have you put forth for it? You know, you're, you're working for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm doing, and subhanAllah, these days we feel, we feel like, like Islam should be privileged to have us. The masjid should be privileged to have us. Right? You start thinking like, my youth group, my organization, they couldn't do it without me. No, they could do it without you. It doesn't depend on you. You have nothing, to, it, this is your privilege to be a part of this deen. It's your privilege to be here. And I'm not even talking about looking at the past. I'm not even talking about looking at the past. I'm talking about look at the people in Syria today. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lift the, the, the pain and lift the suffering and lift the tyranny from them. Allahumma ameen. Look at the people of Syria. When they go to the masjid, when they go to the masjid, despite what's going on over there, you know, they don't get sweet. You know, here in America, we start choosing who we want to go pray behind because we want to hear the nicer voice and we want to choose based on 20 or 8 or 8 or 20 or whatever it is. You start trying to choose masajid, where you're going to drive and which masjid has the best AC and which masjid has the best of thought. You know, that's what we have. That's the privilege we have. In Syria, they have to worry about being killed every single time they go to the masjid. Because there are, there are people in the masajid that will stab you, that will kill you, that are dressed the way I'm dressed, that look the way I look, that will walk up to people while they're praying and stab them. I'm not, gonna, I'm not getting into a whole political discussion. I'm talking about the people of Syria right now. When they go to the masjid, they have to worry about people killing them. Sisters get thrown off the second floor. There are videos of this. Sisters being thrown head first from the mezzanine, mezzanines in the masajid. You're talking about struggle, you're talking about people that go, and here we are still having the same discussions every single MSA halaqa, every single youth halaqa about gender relations and music. Come on, man, it's not haram. Right? Why is it haram? 
No, I don't, I don't think it's hot. No, I'm not, I'm not willing to give this up. That's what we're talking about. Over there, they're talking about going to the masjid despite facing death every single time. That's, you know, and, and we have to face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not just with the people that lived 1400 years ago and had that level of dedication. We have to face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala standing alongside in the same gathering as the people that lived during our times. Wallahi, when the, when the, when the siege on, on Gaza was taking place, on Gaza was taking place, do you know how many young people refused to stop going to the masajid? I know personal stories of 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds that were killed. That, that, were, that were murdered on their way to the masjid or back. The imams, the, I mean imagine, we would never, we, inshallah ta'ala, we never hear this in our lives, when the imam makes adhan and the imam says, Sallu fi buyutikum, pray in your homes, don't come out. Have we ever heard that before? The imam actually saying, don't come to the masjid, it's dangerous. In Gaza, when the siege was, and the siege is still taking place in Gaza by the way, of course, unfortunately, you know, we, we, forget, we forget different places. When we stop seeing gory images and bodies, you know, without, without heads and arms, then we forget that the whole crisis exists. When we stop seeing the images, as if because the media stopped talking about it, it's not there. It's still there. But whenever that massacre was taking place two and a half years ago, young people still going to the masjid, despite that humiliation. In Tunisia, do you know how many sisters, whenever they had that whenever they had their tyrant on top of them, you know how many sisters were raped because they wore hijab? You know how many sisters, you know, I, I remember a, a personal friend of mine who was telling me, you know, when he came back from Tunisia, he said, I'll never go back home. Well, and subhanAllah, he made dua against Zainul Abideen. He made dua against that person, Abideen, whatever, you know. He made dua against him. And he said, you know, I went to my home country and he said, me and my wife were at a restaurant. And a police officer came and he, tug, he tugged her hijab off and went, ran and, and drove off and cursed at her. This is my home country. These are Muslim countries. People struggle. People struggle. But what is the point? This isn't just to make us all feel like we're, we're so little and things of that sort. Here's what I want. And this is what I want us all to take away from, in this Ramadan. And this is what I want us all to take away from this lecture as a whole. You know, whenever you believe in something deeply, whenever you're thinking of Jannah, whenever you want Jannah, whenever your goal in Ramadan is not just to go through the motions, but to actually achieve Jannah as a result, whenever the goal of your ibadat is to achieve Jannah, you don't settle for less. You don't settle for less. The Ansar of the Prophet ﷺ, you could go story after story after story. Umayr ibn Hamam radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Umayr in the battle of Badr, he heard the Prophet ﷺ say that, that for those who are participating, for those who are going forth is a Jannah. And he had some dates in his hand. And he said, Bakhim Bakh. Bakhim Bakh is, is not real Arabic, it just, it's, it's just an, an, an exclamation mark, if you will. He said, you mean we get Jannah? He said, Wallahi, if I live long enough to eat these dates, then I'm a loser. He went forth. You know what the irony of that is? The Ansar were told, when the Ansar took on the Prophet and when the Ansar said to the Prophet we will protect you. Look, we're going to break alliances with people all around us because we have to take you in. 
You know, you're talking about Islam making you awkward in your schools and your societies amongst your, your cliques. The Ansar are saying, you know, we're just getting over years and years of war. There were only three Ansar on the day of Aqaba. Three Ansar over the age of 40 because all of their dads killed each other in tribal war. Like we finally started to have some stability, right? Making alliances. We're going to break all those alliances by taking you in. We're going to support you with our lives. We're going to support you with our wealth. We're going to host all the people that come from Mecca that we've never met before in our lives. We're going to give them half of our homes. We're going to give them half of our wealth. We're going to give them everything we've got. We're going to host them. We're going to take care of them. Oh, Messenger of Allah, what do we get back in turn? Jannah. Prophet ﷺ did not say and, and the Prophet ﷺ could have said to them, Look, just give it a few years. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give us victory and you will be the most honored people on earth. Just give it a few years. Watch what happens to your city. And the Prophet ﷺ had this revelation. You know, that, that just wait. Allah has promised victory. Allah is going to give you victory. The Prophet ﷺ said, Look, if you're here and you're really dedicating yourself to this, to this work, here's what you get. One word, Jannah. Paradise. And the Ansar on that basis, they took bay'ah with him. And from the agreements, actually, from the agreement that the Ansar had with the Prophet ﷺ, was that if they get into battle, if the Muslims get into battle, then the Ansar would not have to fight with them, alongside them. So with the, with the, with the people of Mecca, in essence, if they were pursued and if they were to have a battle, the Ansar had it on contract, on paper, they don't have to fight alongside the Prophet ﷺ. Yet on the battle of Badr, on the battle of Badr, there were 243 Ansar and 70 Muhajireen. They didn't care if it was on paper, they wanted Jannah. I want Jannah. They were like Umair anhu. I want Jannah. Just like, that, just like that person at work, just like that person that's going to school. You believe in something at the end of this. You see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're willing to take the baggage because you believe in something. And you know, subhanAllah, it's, it's, so, you know, it's so sad that in essence, why do we see youth in, in the Masat? Why do we see youth in the Muslim community now, sometimes getting addicted to drugs, going from relation to relationship to relationship. Why do we see youth committing suicide in the Muslim community? This is becoming a growing trend. People that are falling into clinical depression in the Muslim community, they don't have any happiness in their lives. Why is that? Because they're not living. They're not living. They don't know what life is in the sense that there is no meaning to that life. And so what is it, even if it means inflicting pain on myself, even if it means you know, going to another drug, even if it means flushing my career down the toilet, flushing, you know, doing away with everything, my religion, my family, I need to feel like I'm living. I need to, even if it means a negative life, I need to have a meaningful life. Even if, even if it's purposeful in the wrong way, I need to have purpose in my life. And they don't consider deen. Because, you know, on the out, from the outside, you know, you're not gonna. You're you're gonna have to wait till Jannah, right? You go tell some people. Some you go tell someone that's that's struggling in their life in their lives now. You know, and, and many times an American Muslim-born youth, you tell them, look, you know, it's okay. At the end, you get Jannah. It's like, come on, I don't. I, look, how is this gonna benefit me now? And there is benefit now, and that's having a meaningful life. That's having self-esteem, right? Knowing that you're pursuing something that's real. 
knowing that Allah is pleased with you. And if Allah is pleased with you, you don't care if other people are pleased with you. So you, you break that shackle, you reach self-actualization. You reach self-actualization. You don't care anymore. You have meaning to your life, knowing that what you're pursuing is not going to go away. Right? SubhanAllah, what ends up happening when people work and work and work and work, and then they get what they've been trying to achieve for years and years and years and years, they realize this really wasn't what it was all made out to be. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He tells us in the Qur'an, اعلموا أنما الحياة الدنيا لعب ولهو وزينة وتفاخر بينكم وتكاثر في الأموال والأولاد that know that your life is nothing more than play, than, you, than amusement, than uh, uh, zina, which is basically decoration, which means that you, you it's superficiality, superficiality, you decorate yourselves, you dress a certain way, you dress to impress, right? You define your value on the way other people see you. Then it becomes competition, proving yourself. Then it becomes just gathering money and children, living your, living your life through your wealth, through your work, through your children. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And I know you've probably heard a tafsir of this ayah many times, and I guarantee you every time you hear a tafsir of this ayah, you know it's funny, if you open all of the books of tafsir and you read the tafsir of this one ayah, there are 43 different tafsirs of it. Not that they contradict each other, but benefits. that the ulama found in it. Allah says it's like a beneficial rain that came upon crops, and then they grew. Right? A farmer saw something growing because of a beneficial rain that came and now he sees something. He thinks he accomplished something. Then what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? ثُمَّ يَهِيج يَهِيجُ فَتَرَاهُ مُسْفَرًا Then it starts to crumble up and it turns yellow. It turns yellow. Now what does Allah say? تَرَاهُ مُسْفَرًا You will see it as yellow. Right? It's, it's really interesting, subhanAllah, the word usage here. You will see what you achieved as yellow. And what does that mean? When you see a plant, when you see uh, gardens, when you see things that look really, 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 you know, plush, and they look really, really, really fresh, and then what happens, then they start to turn, the garden starts to turn yellow, the plants aren't being watered. It starts to, the, the leaves start to crumble up. Now what does this mean and what is so powerful about this ayah? And there's one of the, some of the fawad that some of the scholars drew from that. Because Allah didn't talk about the adab of the akhirah until afterwards. Allah is talking about the adab in this life when you're not working for something meaningful. You know what happens in dunya? You get enough money to buy what you've always wanted to buy. You buy the car that you always wanted to buy. You worked and worked and worked and worked and you got a car on riba. You got a car on interest because you really wanted that car. You really wanted that house. And you thought that that house was going to give you happiness. You thought that car was going to give you happiness. So you enslave yourself in debt because the house looks awesome at first. And then you have to go get a car and you have to start working extra hours to be able to live in that house. So you drive and drive and drive and drive and you work harder and harder and harder and harder to get yourself out of debt because you thought the house was going to give you happiness. You're not even enjoying that house. Now what is the point here? It turned yellow. Even if you were to get an island home, even if you were to get a home, a vacation home in the Bahamas, I guarantee you if you stay there long enough, it turns yellow. Meaning what? It does not interest you eventually anymore. Right? You get your iPhone, 
All of a sudden, the iPhone is not good enough, you want an iPhone 2. All of a sudden, the iPhone 2 is not, it's not thin enough, you want an iPhone 3. And then when the iPhone gets thin again, no, you want it to be thick again, you get an iPhone 4. It's got to have some different functions. It's got to look different every single time. Right? Now we all want an iPhone 5 with Steve Jobs died. Right? I, I think something might be coming out in the fall. But the point is, is that you start, you get put, you get something. It looks awesome from the outside. Like, if I get that, then I'm definitely going to be happy. That car looks amazing on the outside. Then you drive it for a week. Then you play with it for a week. And it turns yellow. It doesn't look so good anymore. I want more. I want more. I want something else that's going to give me happiness. So I want the same car next year, but I want the lights to move a little bit differently. It's going to be the exact same car, but I want it to, look, I, I want it to be... Because this is not interesting me anymore. And you know what's happening here? It's a drug addiction. It is a serious drug addiction. And at the end of the day, you're going to realize, I'm not even living life. There is absolutely no meaning to my life here. And that is punishment. That is punishment when you work. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَقَدْ That we created man in toil. You're always toiling for something. As human beings, we're always toiling for something. We're trying to accomplish something. And the worst punishments in this life is to see that your, 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 your achievements were actually fruitless. They really didn't mean much. And your life really was not meaningful. Because you were pursuing something that really had no meaning to it. And what does Allah subhanahu wa say in the Qur'an? That which was sought and that which was seeking has been weakened. It's meaningless. What you were seeking was nothing. And you as a result, you reduced yourself to that car. You reduced yourself to that phone. You reduced yourself to that status. You reduced yourself to all of that. You became less than it in, by virtue of seeking it. And Imam Ibn Taymiyyah he said something beautiful. He said, and so the one who seeks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can never be unsatisfied. Because you're seeking something that is so much greater than you, that you can't even be likened to Allah. So you will never be weakened because you're seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says, Da'if al-Talib Here you have these people seeking meaningless things, and they're not living life. They're not living life. And then at the end of the day, they're going to inflict pain on themselves, whether it's through social pain, physical pain, because they want to feel like they're alive. And here you have a person who's seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and every time he gets closer and closer to Allah, he achieves two things. Atah rahimahullah, he said that doing a good deed, doing a good deed gives you three pleasures. Yeah, good, good deeds, hasanat, give you pleasure. They're supposed to make you happy. They're not supposed to make you idle. They're not supposed to make you proud. They're supposed to make you happy when you achieve things in terms of deed. Rasulullah said this, If your good deeds make you happy and your bad deeds make you sad, that means you're a believer. That means you still have your radar working somewhat. Still operating. If it still makes you feel good to go to Fajr, it still makes you feel good to come to the Masjid. If you feel good at the end of this after Tarawih, Alhamdulillah. The problem is when you be like when when you think so highly of yourself that you don't do anything anymore. When you think just because you're going to Tarawih, just because you came to the Masjid, that exempts you from living your life as a Muslim outside of the Masjid now because you're so proud of yourself. No, but it feels good, right? 
I mean, at the end of this Qiyam program, inshallah, I hope you'll feel good in the sense that, alhamdulillah, I did something meaningful with my time. Right? I spent my time in a meaningful way while people were sleeping tonight. So, Allah, rahimahullah, he said that there are three pleasures for the, for the servant whenever he does a good deed. The first one is while he's actually doing the good deed. Doesn't it feel good, subhanAllah, to actually be doing these good deeds? When you're actually engaged in the process and you're aware that this is a good deed and that this is for Allah and Allah is watching, it feels good. It feels good. So he said, that's the first thing. Then he said, وَحِينَ يَذْكُرُهَا And then whenever he remembers it. Later on in his life, when you think back on your good deeds, when you think back on your accomplishments, you feel good. You feel good. Not proud, but good. Alhamdulillah. You know, I'm glad that in my youth, I was, I was in the masjid. I could have been in many different places. Alhamdulillah, I was doing something. I figured it out early on. I was reading Qur'an early on. I was, in, I was in the masjid early on. You know, I was doing something meaningful. So whenever you think back, and I, I guarantee you, inshallah, if you ever go to like a tarbiyah camp, and I, I'm a huge fan of like tarbiyah camps and stuff like that, like intensive classes, whether it's, it's in the form of a weekend seminar, a week-long seminar, a two-week seminar, a one-month program. I remember, I, don't, I, I saw Brother Thodic, so we had the Bayina grads, right? Whenever people finish Bayina. When you look back on it, it's sweet memories. Sweet memories. Like Alhamdulillah. It's, you think about it and you feel good. You don't feel like you wasted your time when you do these types of things. Right? So that's the second pleasure. Then he said, and the third one is the ultimate pleasure, and that's when he meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You haven't even begun to be rewarded yet. You feel good about it, and you feel accomplished, and you're saying, alhamdulillah, you've already reaped the benefits of this good deed. But at the same time, the real pleasure is when you get to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's when the Prophet informs us, right? That for the fasting person is two pleasures. One, when he breaks his fast, but the real, real pleasure is when he meets Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with that fast. And Allah gives him his reward then. And you know, subhanAllah, when you think about this from a standpoint, again, working despite the obstacles. There are many ahadith where the Prophet praised a person who, is, who, who, who loses something in the process of being, in, of being Muslim. Right? So the Prophet he, he, he said, you know, he praised the gray hair that came Throughout being a Muslim, right? Throughout working fi sabirillah, right? You have this gray hair that has been that has been with you for your entire life, for throughout your Islam, right? You you attained a gray hair while you were being a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ praised Shabun, you know, a young person who was who was raised in the ta'a of Allah and the worship of Allah subhanahu wa taala. Someone whose heart was attached to the masjid. Someone who was, in essence, someone who was working, and as a result. They lost, they, they sacrificed some things, right? They made some sacrifices. SubhanAllah, I was, I was looking and this really got me thinking. You know, I, I remember um, just really right before Ramadan actually. Not right before Ramadan, this, there was, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking how many months ago it was, but it was only a few months ago. Uh, a great scholar by the name of Sheikh Abu Ishaq al-Hawaini, Hafidhullah in Egypt. And he had to have his legs amputated. He had to have, and this is a person that has taught millions of people the deen. Millions and millions and millions of people in the deen. And subhanAllah, it just, it just gets you thinking. Like man, those legs, how many times have those legs walked for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? 
They were used in walking to masjid after masjid after masjid to seek knowledge after knowledge after knowledge. Shaykh Abu Ishaq was the prison mate of Sheikh Abdul Hamid Ta'ala in prison. Uh, you know, whenever whenever Egypt, whenever the people of Egypt were under tyranny, he was he was his prison mate. How many times have these legs walked for salah? How many times have these legs stood for tahajjudan? And you know, I'm not trying to immortalize them. And I'm talking about just so we can take some present day role models, right? You look at a person, it's really worked fi sabilillah. Then you look at a person who lived their entire lives, let's say as an athlete, and really never came close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And at the end, they ended up losing their legs or they ended up you know, going through some sort of excruciating pain. They were, they were rendered incapable at the end. And you think to yourself, SubhanAllah, look at the difference between the two. How one person worked and worked and worked and worked. And imagine how when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, I walked in and Qiyamul Layl, the brother was reciting from Surah Yasin, the day that the limbs will testify. To right? We, we were reading this just now, that the hands will speak and the legs will come and bear witness. Your limbs will actually come and bear witness for or against you on the Day of Judgment. That's scary. That's scary. Your arms, your legs, your tongue, everything will come, your eyes will speak for you or against you on the Day of Judgment. Now imagine legs or eyes. I, I always mention Shaykh Ahmad Idat, rahimahullah ta'ala. Subhanallah, I mean, whether you agree with some of his da'wah tactics or not, I know brothers always like to start talking about that. The man worked. He worked. He was a doer and he worked fi sabilillah. And I remember in the 1990s, whatever, he, he became paralyzed from nose down. And if you ever watch his old debates, I mean, he's always got, he always had energy, subhanAllah. He always just, it, it looked like he drank like three cans of Red Bull before every single debate. <laughs> MashaAllah, rahimahullah ta'ala. Man, that guy had some energy. You know, subhanAllah, some, I, I, you know, he did the debate in LSU uh, with Jimmy Swagger. And I was a kid when that happened. You know, it was a very famous debate with Jimmy Swagger. The guy would get off of a plane and just start goes to a debate, and he's ready, he's fresh, right? And I feel really bad saying that, having come late to my <laughs> program here tonight. <laughs> SubhanAllah, he's just fresh, ready to go. And then he was paralyzed from nose down. And the only thing he had were his eyes. If you ever watch a video, you can actually go to YouTube. It's very, SubhanAllah, heartbreaking. So to see, you know, after his stroke, when he was paralyzed from nose down, and just seeing him laying in bed, and if you've seen him in person, you've seen how much energy he had, subhanAllah, you've seen him laying in bed. But you know what? He didn't quit. He didn't quit. He was actually, he had a machine where he could write letters using his eyes. He would blink at certain letters. So he'd look at, he would blink at certain letters, so he was able to write letters using his eyes. And he would spend the entire day writing letters to the preachers that he's debated throughout the world, to people that asked him questions, if you wrote a letter to, to Sheikh Ahmad Idat between 96 and 99, you would have got a response. He would have sent you back a letter. He would sit there and respond to questions on Islam, respond to people, send letters throughout the world using his eyes. And that, he had two nurses, two Christian nurses in South Africa, and he would debate with them using his eyes. And in 1998, one of those nurses accepted Islam. 
The guy accomplished with his eyes, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, what some of us will not be able to accomplish with our full faculties throughout our entire lives. That's deep. You know, when you meet Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala and your hands, again, we're still having these conversations. What I'm saying to the Muslim youth, and I know that this is really, really, really hard to fathom sometimes. Are you doing something meaningful? If you're still having the discussion about the same issue, whether it's halal or haram, every single day of your life, while people are striving and struggling for this deen, while people are getting to work, that means you're consuming yourself in something that is purposeless. You're consuming yourself in abath. And one of the things the Prophet said will be asked about on the Day of Judgment, عَنْ شَبَابِهِ وَفِرِوَايَةً عَنْ جِسْمِهِ About your health, about your body, fima abla, How you consumed your body. How you consumed your body. Look, we're all going to die. We're all going to get really, really weak one day. If we don't die in some sudden tragic accident or some sudden tragic heart attack or something of that sort, we're going to see ourselves get old. We're going to see our health go away. We're going to see it. It's, it's, just, it's just a natural process. This is, how it ha- this is what life is. And subhanAllah, if towards the end of your life, you've done absolutely nothing meaningful with your life, you haven't accomplished anything, you haven't done anything to really to really have a true legacy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then you're going to be filled with regret. And on the Day of Judgment, that was an amana. You've got to answer for that. You know, if, if Rasulullah said that we will be asked on the Day of Judgment for a sip of water, a sip of water, you'll be asked about it. Then what about the blessing of Islam? What about the blessing of Iman? What about the blessing of these youth groups? You know, subhanAllah, and it just... it. it it bothers me to see wasted potential. It really, there's nothing that bothers me more personally, I'm telling you, than to see wasted potential. It drives me insane. There's some people, subhanAllah, that just have a world of potential. But they end up being so average. So average. Because they're not doing anything. They're still concerning themselves with whether this is halal or whether this is haram. And they're not working. They're not just getting that, subhanAllah, they're not doers. And it's, and it's bothersome. Because how much potential do we have? How much good could we really do? Allah's going to ask us about this. You know, subhanAllah, there is a masjid in, in, um, in Dallas. I, I'm known to sing the praises of the community in Dallas a lot. MashaAllah, it's a beautiful community. Um, anyone who's been there would know, and that's not a knock on your community. It's my first time here, alhamdulillah. But there's a masjid in, um, in Plano. It's called Epic Masjid. So I'm giving you guys a shout out if you guys are here. If you guys are watching East Plano Islamic Center. Right? And so it's a shout out to the sisters in Epic Masjid. They have 11 sisters' halaqas a week. Allah. And one guy's halaqa. <laughs> and I was told, this is what I was told by them actually. I remember the sisters, the Ikna sisters wing invited me for a lecture on riba, interest, like a month ago. At 11 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, there were over a hundred sisters there. SubhanAllah, just making use of your time and working and pursuing something meaningful. Now back to the ayah of Surah Al-Hadid, and, and we'll have to end with this. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, كَمَثَرِ غَيْثٍ أَعْجَبَ الْكُفَّارَ نَبَاتٌ ثُمَّ يَهِيجُ فَتَرَاهُ مُسْفَرًا People were happy, were pleased with, with a beneficial rain that came, and the crops grew, the plants grew, and then the leaves started to turn yellow and they started to crumble. ثُمَّ يَكُونُ 
and then the plant completely died and disappeared. And then the real punishment has not even started yet. The real punishment is when you meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And for the believers, the forgiveness of Allah and His pleasure. And the life of this world is not but a temporary pleasure based on deception, delusion. Now, SubhanAllah, and I told you, if you read tafsir of this ayah, I'm telling you, every single tafsir has a different fa'ida from it. And even some of the modern day tafsir, some of the modern day mufassirin, they made a point to say that, that when, uh, the reason why the plant starts to turn yellow, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is describing our lives here, right? The way, and SubhanAllah, the Qur'an, there is beauty in the Qur'an. Every single year, you find beautiful things from it, new things from it. I, I posted something on Facebook just a few days ago, it's really, really beautiful, powerful, that that science has now discovered that ants talk to each other. I'm serious, subhanAllah, you can, there's, and it, was, it was actually on ABC in 2009, this report. So you thought those ants weren't, actually they're, some, they're from the most sophisticated insects, and they all talk to each other. They have a way of communicating with each other. And Allah told us in Surah Al-Namal, the chapter of the ants, about how the ants were planning whenever Sulaiman was coming. They were talking to each other and communicating to each other. So every single year, you find beautiful things from the Qur'an. It's a living miracle. There's always miracles from it, even scientific miracles. And from the fawa'ad of this, by the way, um, I remember uh, my, my beloved teacher, Shaykh Hatim al-Hajj, was talking about this from a medical perspective, that Allah just described the life cycle of an individual, and the reason why the plant starts to turn yellow and crumble is because it does not have water. And this is true. The life went away. The beneficial water went away in the sense that when a, a child is born, 52% of his body is made up of water. Or I'm sorry, actually it was 76% of his body is made up of water. By the time the average individual dies, only 52% of his body is water. You naturally are more dehydrated. <laughs> SubhanAllah. So he's saying you literally turn yellow in that regard, right? You naturally become more dehydrated. Just so many benefits. But the point that I, that I really want to make here again, just make sure that you're doing something meaningful. You know, Jose Addison, he wrote um, in his book on happiness, his principles of happiness, something really phenomenal, and I'll end with this. He wrote that there are three, there are three components of happiness today, and I've mentioned this in the lecture before, so I'm saying it again. So if you're watching this and you're saying he had already said this before, well, that's what YouTube does, alright? <laughs> so, subhanAllah, he said there are three components of happiness. And just, re just remember them. Sisters and brothers, remember them. He said it's something to do, something to love, and something to look forward to. If a person has three, these three components in their lives, they will be happy. And if a person is missing any one of these components in their lives, they will not be able to be happy. They will not achieve happiness. And at the end of the day, they're going to kill themselves, they're going to be depressed, they're going to die feeling miserable, not having accomplished anything. But if a person has these three components, something to do, they're always productive, they're always working. As human beings, you know, we're, it's, it's always, there's this fantasy that, and, and you know, especially when you're young, you're likely to get caught into some form of a pyramid scheme. You know, there's a lot of different studies on that. Like someone's going to teach you that you can get rich quick and that you've figured something else 
And I'm not going to start saying names of organizations and gimmicks and things of that sort, but if you sell this product and if you go and get this person, you sell, you're, you're likely to get caught into some form of a get-rich-quick scheme. Right? And people will tell you that you'll be able to retire by the age of 25 or by the age of 30 years old. It's all garbage and nonsense, but you're, that idea is very attractive. And I'll get, to, I'll get to just kick back and relax and my money will all be there and it's going to all be taken. My money is going to be making money and things of that sort and I'll just kick back. But as human beings, we actually don't like to sit back. It's really miserable. And subhanAllah, I remember on uh, CBS News one time, they were talking about how when people retire, they look for ways to, to make themselves work. Right? Start establishing, you know, walking schedules and things of that. Like, they want to give themselves work. You, you, you want to feel relevant. So you still want to work. So in reality, retirement's not very nice either. You really don't want to retire. Inside of you, you really don't want to retire. You want to keep working. You, but you want to be doing something meaningful, right? And that doesn't mean working in the sense of, of corporate America getting a salary and things, but you really want to work. You like to be productive. People like to be productive, right? So something to do, something to work, to, to, something to keep you engaged and busy. Something, what was the second thing I mentioned? Something to love, good. Something to love. If it's devoid of love, if it's devoid of, of friendship, if it's devoid of, you know, if you're just doing it because everybody else is doing it, but at the same time you don't love what you do, you know how they have that, that love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life, all those types of quotes and things of that sort, right? Because people think that I'll just do this and this will make me rich and that will naturally give me happy. No. If you don't have anything to love in your life, then you won't be happy. Something to love. Then, something to look forward to. Again, one of the most miserable things that could happen to an individual. One of the most miserable things that could happen to an individual is that they get there and it's not what it was made out to be. And there is nothing further to look forward to. You've got the money, you've got the status, you've got everything that you wanted, and it wasn't what it was made out to be. And unfortunately, that is a disappointment that takes place on a daily basis. And people are always disappointed because the dunya always disappoints. If you get rich, you're not going to be able to purchase your health. Your health might take a hit. If you get rich and you get the house and you get the fame and you get all of that, then your parents are getting old and they might die very soon. And what are you going to do to deal with that? Right? Your kids are going to have hardships. Your kids might not treat you with risk. It's, it's struggle. It's turmoil. And you realize I've got nothing to look forward to. The only thing I'm doing is I'm trying to use my money to make more money. But at the end of the day, I've got nothing to look forward to. So why do I say that these three things, Jose Addison, SubhanAllah, Wallahi, I, was, I read this and I happened to be reading Surah Ali Imran that day. Rush, meaning work, something to do. Sadir, and this is a very famous quote, by the way, what I just mentioned. So I didn't just make it up, and Jose Addison is a real person. Because right? <laughs> I know it's the, it's the age of quotations. You could just say, you know, common names and things of that sort. But Sadir means what? Work, rush, sabiqu, istabiqu. Allah says, rush, work. Run to the forgiveness and compassion of your Lord. Something to do, something to love. And then what comes next? 
And a paradise that is as vast as the heavens and the earth. It's been promised for those who are conscious and aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Something to look forward to. That is so beautiful. That with people, these, these, these books about happiness versus achievements and the ten principles of happiness and how to live a, a meaningful life and the hell of a purposeless life. The scholars already were talking about Jahim al-Ghurur, the hell of a purposeless life, 1300 years ago. We've are, it's already in the Qur'an, it's already in the Sunnah. Allah already wants you to live a meaningful life. So the point that I'm, I'm just trying to make again, and it's, it's got to... If you really love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you're working for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it will be meaningful. And at the end of the day, all the nonsense that comes with it. Yes, you're going to find people that are going to stand in your way. You're going to find very rude people. You're going to be very unappreciated. I'm telling you, if you work in Islamic work, if you have anything to do with an Islamic organization or a masjid, you will be very, very, very underappreciated. Because knowledge is underappreciated. Deen is underappreciated. That's just the time that we live in. Okay, you're going to be underappreciated. People are not going to treat you like you're doing anything. So if you're doing it for yourself or if you're doing it for the praise of people, you're going to burn out and you're going to be one of those people that, that looks back on their lives and says, I remember when I used to do this. And I used to do that. I used to do this and I used to do that. You burned out. Why? Because you were underappreciated and you weren't doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you're doing it for Allah, every single step you get closer to Allah, you get unsatisfied. You're, 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 you're happy at what you've achieved, but at the same time, you want more. You've memorized one juz of Qur'an, and you've tasted the sweetness of that, doing that for the sake of Allah. I really want to do two juz now. I really want to move on. You started to learn a little bit of Islam. You open these books. You just learn the basics. And then you thought to yourself, I really don't know enough. I feel like the most ignorant person in the world. You know, subhanAllah, whereas a person who's never opened the book, or who's barely opened the book in Islam, but thinks they know it all, you know, will argue with people over, over complicated, sophisticated issues of fiqh. I really don't feel like I've gotten anywhere. I want more, 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 more. But that more is not one that disappoints you, right? Seriously. Are you deep? Because in dunya, you feel like everything went to waste before that because you haven't gotten more. In Islam, it's like, this is so awesome, I want more. It's different. I've tasted the sweetness of it, so I want to keep on eating from that dish. I want to keep on getting from it. I want to keep on drawing from it. You know, I tasted the sweetness one time of salah. I remember in Ramadan, I remember when I was praying in Taraweeh, and the Imam was reading, and I was affected by that. You know, I understood the words that he was saying that time. I want to understand more Qur'an. I want more. So, wanting more, but in a good way. Let those who want to compete, compete for that. The pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So don't worry about the people in front of you, and don't worry about the rudeness, and don't worry about the underappreciation, and don't worry about not being able to live that facade of, you know, of being part of that, that culture where everybody competes with everybody else. If, you know, that person had a wedding that looked like that, I've got to have a wedding that outdoes their wedding. That person has this car, I've got to outdo their car, that person... Don't get involved in that nonsense. Work for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And your life will have purpose and meaning insha'Allah. And like Imam ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah said, and this is my last, 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 last point. Imam al-Qayyim rahimahullah, he said that you know that you've had a productive day. And this is in, in his fawa'id. He said, whenever you put your head on the pillow and you fall asleep right away. 
And it's not just because you're someone who sleeps really easy. But it's because you've worked. You've made the most out of that day. You've turned that 24-hour day into 100 hours. You've turned it into so much more. Whereas another person slept half of the day, watched a movie for another three hours of the day, you know, completely wasted their time during that day. You turn that 24-hour day into, into a lifetime. SubhanAllah. And that's essentially when we look at the Sahaba and what they were able to accomplish, people like Bliman, people that read Qur'an, you know, how they read Qur'an every single day, how they were able to do this, and we look at this stuff and we say, that's not humanly possible. <laughs> they had barak in their time. They had blessing in their time. So I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow both you and I, inshaAllah ta'ala, all of us here, to learn the art of first and foremost standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because that is the true work, qiyam, number one, standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to learn the blessing of working fi sabilillah and being a part of the deen and being a part of, of the, the spread of this deen, being a part of something purpose, you know, with, with purpose and with meaning. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to be part of this great legacy of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that whenever we leave this world, we have left behind something meaningful. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when our limbs testify on the day of judgment, they testify for us. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when our tongues testify on the day of judgment, they testify for our tasbih and for our dhikr and for our enjoining good. And they don't testify against us for our backbiting and our lying and our vain talk. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when our legs testify on the day of judgment, they testify that these legs stood in prayer, that these legs walked and toiled for the sake of you, O Allah, that, that they did not just walk towards vain talk, that they did not just get tired and exhausted in sports and in, in you know, walking towards falsehood. No, but they actually got tired for your sake. They actually moved for you, O Allah, that our arms move for you, O Allah, and that we become a people that start to live for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we ask Allah, Allahumma thabbitna inda al-mawti bila ilaha illallah, to grant us ithbat, to live by la ilaha illallah, to die by la ilaha illallah, and to be raised with la ilaha illallah. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullahu khayran for your attentive listening. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless you all, inshallah. And I apologize again for my, for my being late. I really hate to do that. But subhanAllah, it was the qabr of Allah. And there might be some, there, there is some wisdom certainly in that. I'm not blaming, blaming my tardiness on qabr. I'm just saying, you know, please forgive me for that, inshallah. And I hope that uh, you are still able to benefit, inshallah ta'ala. And I'll just request everyone that tonight make sure you pray Salatul Witr before uh, you sleep. If you're going to do something, stay away till Fajr. Just make sure you make, you, you get in your Witr Salah. Jazakumullah khayran wa salam wa yeah, sure. Um, inshallah, we'll take a few questions. If anyone has any questions, please ask. So, brother, sister, we'll go one by one, one, inshallah. Or sister, brother, actually. Ladies first. If anyone has a question, someone can raise their hand, inshallah, time and ask. Anybody has a question? Online? Can we take questions online? <coughs> you have a question right here, Okay. If you have a question, you're online, post, post to uh, Our side. which Facebook page? I love Facebook page. Matthew, does, does this center have a Facebook page? What is it? There is an image page. Young Muslims page. Yeah.
When you the PM, is it better to do it at home? If everyone, those of you who are walking out, if you can make sure that you keep your commotion down, inshallah, your voices down, so that we can answer questions. Yes. For Qiyam, is it better to do it at home or do it in the Majid with Jamaat? For Qiyam, is it better to do it at home or to do it in Jamaat? Um, aside from Tarawih prayer, for sure it's better to do it at home than to do it in Jamaat. It's, it's better to pray all of your nawafil at home. Rasulullah said, don't turn your homes into graveyards. So your sunnah prayers, if you can pray them at home, that's better. If you think you're not going to pray them if you go home because you're going to get distracted, then pray them in the masjid. But this, the, you know, to get the maximum reward, the Prophet always prayed his sunnahs at home. So, as you know, as much as you can keep your your, your salah between you and Allah subhanahu wa taala, do so. But praying in jama'ah in terms of fard, obviously, you you know, we have to do the mandatory prayers if we can. But as far as tarawih is concerned, there is a difference of opinion. Whether Umar, when Umar al-Khattab anhu gathered people behind one imam, being Ubay ibn Ka'ab anhu. Some of the scholars said it's still better if a person can pray the same amount of Qiyam, with the same amount of Qur'at al-Qur'an, because Taraweeh is just Qiyam. There's no such thing as the word Taraweeh in the Sunnah, just it's Qiyam al-Layh. So if a person can pray with the same diligence at home, then some of the scholars said it's preferred to pray at home even then. But let's face it, you know, with an Imam reciting in the Masjid and praying in Jama'ah and Taraweeh, the whole feeling of Ramadan absorbing that, you benefit a lot from that. I mean. Just that whole feeling, that whole atmosphere. But throughout the year, if you can pray Qiyam at home, that's much better. Sisters, any questions? Oh yes, I forgot a very important announcement. Um, on August 7th, inshallah ta'ala, at 7 p.m. Central Time, on Tuesday, I'm going to be teaching a class called The Night of Your Life. Um, and that's a, a, a lecture, a class on... Laylatul Qadr, pursuing Laylatul Qadr. It'll be for an hour and a half, inshallah ta'ala, August 7th. You can go to ilfhouston.org. You can go to, the, to, to Facebook, to the ILF page on Facebook, inshallah ta'ala, for more information. It's going to be a completely free class. So no pain, no payments, but at the same time, if you can please encourage others to come, inshallah ta'ala, get the word out, inshallah. You know, spread it through all of your networks so that as many people, it's, it's, it should be the 19th or the 20th night um, of Ramadan, inshallah ta'ala. So it's a chance for us to look, to learn the fiqh, to learn the beauty, to, to sort of just get rejuvenated about looking for Laylatul Qadr, um, inshallah ta'ala, in the last 10 nights before we start, on the same night that we're going to start, inshallah ta'ala. So please do your best to be a part of that. Sisters, any questions? Tell your brothers? Yes. Is there any virtue to finishing the whole Qur'an in Ramadan, reading it by yourself? Absolutely. This is Shahrul Qur'an. Jibreel would review with the Prophet daily in Ramadan. And it's very important for us to understand, you know, Qatad says that the Salaf considered a person a hypocrite if he did not finish the Qur'an every month. So, we're supposed to finish the Qur'an every month. But in Ramadan, you kick it up a notch. You step, you, you, you really do push yourself. If you haven't been finishing it throughout the year, at least in Ramadan you need to make sure that you finish the Qur'an once, maybe twice if you can, doing two juz a day if you have to. But try your best to finish the Qur'an in Ramadan. But it is the month of Qur'an. So yes, there is virtue to that. Other questions? 
Yes, sir. The AC just turned on, so <laughs> a lot of noise here. Purpose. Do you have any recommendations for living a life of purpose? Yes, um, that's a very good question. Number one, um, the major thing that the, the main thing that you need to look at. Rasulullah said in the Hadith of Abu Nuaim, authentic Hadith, fi kulli ummatin, fi kulli qarni min ummati sabiqun. In every generation of my ummah, there are people that are foremost. There are people that are ahead of the bunch. They are sabiqun. If you are just praying enough to where you're, 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 you know, you're on par with, or you're, you're at the same level as your family, as your, as your circle of friends, as the people around you, that means you need to up it. You need to up the ante, right? Raise your standards, elevate yourself. So the number one thing is that you always need to make sure you're ahead of the pack. You're ahead of your, your, you're ahead of the, your, your circle of friends. You're ahead of your family, right? You're the, you're the one who's going. Uh, furthest with the deen in your family, in your circle of friends, with the people around you, in the community, that you are not just ordinary. So that's the first thing, that you're doing more than everyone else. That's number one. Now, number two is, before a person looks at adding good deeds, the number one thing a person needs to look at is what is standing between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is standing between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Why wouldn't Allah give me guidance? And that, that's why taqwa is tarq al-ma'asi, is abandoning sins. Abandoning sins has far greater priority in deen than doing more good deeds. It is much more important to abandon the things that are displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than to add to the things that are pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if you've taken a wrong turn in your life and you're continuing on that wrong path, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not give you guidance. Allah is not going to allow you to have sweetness in salah if you're engaging yourself steadily, even in a minor sin. To insist on a minor sin is a major sin. It becomes a kabira. When you insist on the same minor sin over and over and over again, it's a major sin at that point. So what are the things that are standing between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah, he described it as, as a hijab between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Your nafs your ego, your lowly desires. So lifting that veil, the veil off your heart between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then naturally, وَالَّذِينَ اَهْتَدَوْ زَادَهُمْ هُدَىٰ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consistently mentions الزِيَادَ فِي الْهُدَىٰ Increasing people in guidance that seek guidance. So naturally when you abandon the things between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are displeasing, and that is what Ramadan is all about, abandoning those things between us and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, those obstacles, then naturally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will further you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow you to draw closer to Him inshaAllah. The third thing is gradually building yourself. And it's so simple. A person that has prayed two rak'ahs of sunnah before Salat al-Fajr for their entire lives has made sure that they just don't abandon those two rak'ahs of, of sunnah of Fajr prayer. will have prayed far more sunnah prayers than a person who used to just pray Fawr, but used to pray Taraweeh in Ramadan. He would have done more Sunnah prayers than a person who would have, who would have just prayed their Fawr, but, but, but made sure to do Taraweeh in Ramadan. Even if he didn't pray a single Raka'ah of Taraweeh in his life. Why? Because it was consistent. 
that the most beloved actions to Allah are the small ones, are the ones that are consistent even if they're small. Gradually developing yourself. My goals for this Ramadan, Ramadan 2012 should be different from my goals of Ramadan 2013. They should be completely different. This Ramadan should not be like the next Ramadan. I should have developed myself. I should have normalized the, the habits. I should have made them a part of my, 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 my life by the end of Ramadan. By the time next Ramadan comes around, the standards that I set in Ramadan should be, again, my bare minimum. I need to be upping it you know, next Ramadan. I need to be making sure that I'm, that I'm reaching a new standard, inshallah. So building, building yourself gradually. The last thing, Center your life around your acts of worship. Center your life around your salah. Center your life around your acts of worship, around the things that please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Plan your life around those things. Right? And that's really subhanAllah, you know, I don't I don't make any I don't engage myself in anything. I don't get into any, you know, any activity or anything of that sort, especially if it's if it's leisure. Um, if it's going to contradict a certain schedule that I've already set for myself. Right, so for example, every single day after Salat al-Fajr, I have to read this amount of Qur'an, I have to do this, I have to do that. Every single day after Salat al-Maghrib, I have this habit. Every single day after Isha, I have this. Whatever it is, I have habits that, I'm, that, I've, that I've established in my life to draw close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So with that, you know, I'm not going to allow anything to come in between me and that worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I'll plan around it, right? When we want to go to the mall, you know, we've got this, the, you know, if we want to go hang out, if we want to go do these things, I'm planning around my salah. I'm planning around my acts of worship. That way, dunya becomes the necessity, whereas, whereas deen becomes, you know, your purpose. And it's not the opposite, where salah is just an obligation that you have to do, where acts of worship are just an obligation that you have to do, but you don't feel your heart into it. You know, you don't feel like your heart is really into it. So, um, you know, we look at our salah sometimes as a distraction from dunya. Right, let's face it, we're trying to do something and then you look at your watch and, oh, you know, I've, I've got to pray salah, I've only got 30 minutes left in Dhuhr salah. You go and you do your raggedy Dhuhr salah, you know, it's got absolutely no quality in it just to get it out of the way. So your salah was a distraction from what you were really trying to do. So where was your purpose? Where was your sense of, of uh, happiness? Where was your sense of meaning? It was in the dunya, it wasn't in the deen. Whereas we see deen, we see our ibadat, we should see our ibadat as Muslims, as the center of our lives. So inshallah, I hope those, those few tips would, would help us inshallah. Any other questions? Yes. What can you do to increase your khushur and tarawih? It's so simple. Even if you don't understand a lick of Arabic, you need to read about the juz. You need to read just the basic tafsir of the juz before you come to tarawih that night. You need to know what the imam is going to read and you need to be aware of it. I'm telling you, even if you don't understand Arabic, if you spend 30 minutes a day reading about that juz, catching key words, understanding what the imam is going to be talking about, what the imam is going to be reading, then you're engaged. Before you even start tarawih, you're already engaged. So reading about it before you start, and then not eating too much before Salat al-Aisha. If you're gaining weight in Ramadan, you're definitely not doing it right. right? 
So we really need to look at the portions that we eat, you know, making sure that we eat small, smaller portions. Because, I mean, how, how are you going to have any khushur in salah if you've eaten that, if you've eaten this, this humongous plate of all this variety? And it's funny, because, like, you've got Ramadan buffets and stuff like that. It's like, all around, like, in restaurants, like, they know to do Ramadan buffets, special Ramadan buffets, and it's like, wow. You know, they know that people pig out in Ramadan shamelessly, right? You're not going to have quality in your salah then. You're going to be burping up your biryani from a You haven't any quality in your salah. So, smaller portions. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Steps to accomplish forgiveness. Allah says, and Aisha has asked this, this is really beautiful. Aisha was asked by some people, how how can I know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will show will, will show tawbah to me, will accept my tawbah? And Aisha said, Allah accepted your tawbah before you even asked, because Allah says in the Quran, Allah turned to you so that you could turn to him in the first place. So when it comes to forgiveness, just by a person's desire to be forgiven, Allah has already forgiven them if their desire was sincere. But it's not enough to just cry, it's not enough to just feel bad, it's, you know, you have to actually make resolutions in your, in your life. So uh, the, the shurut al-tawbah, as, as we derive from the hadith, which are the, the prerequisites of, of true repentance. Number one is anadam, is remorse, regret, feeling bad for what you've done. Number two is actually seeking forgiveness. So the first thing is actually feeling bad for it, but the second thing is actually seeking forgiveness. Number three is to commit to never return to that sin again. And number four, if applicable, if you've harmed somebody, you need to make sure that you undo that harm, that you try to restore the rights of the person that you of, of the person that you have harmed. Should we keep going? Oh, last question, yeah. To follow up, what if you what if you go back to that sin? Here's the thing: you need to, you know, if, if we we always we always find that there's sometimes obstacles between us and Allah Subhanahu and we sincerely want to get rid of them sometimes, right? But then, and when we make repentance, we're sincere in that repentance, and then sometimes we fall back into it. There are two things that can. There are two things that you need to ask yourself. The number one was my repentance truly sincere in the first place. Uh, did I really feel b bad enough about it? The second thing is that yes, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will continue to forgive you, as Rasulullah said. Allah will continue to forgive you, or Allah will not get tired of forgiving you until you get tired of seeking His forgiveness. Allah will not get sick of forgiving you until you get sick of seeking His forgiveness. But what I would say is that those consistent sins, which you have to understand, is that every time you repent from the sin, but you still end up falling into it, uh, you're breaking your resolve. So the next time that you make repentance, you're not even going to believe yourself. right? You're going to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm making this stuff up, but I know I'm going to fall right back into it. And shaitan tries to make you hopeless. Uh, the meaning of shaitan's, the meaning of shaitan is shatara, which means he dug himself deep. Shatara, shatun means a deep well. Shaitana means he kept digging himself deeper and deeper in the hole. That's what the meaning of the word shaitan is. Ablasa means, Iblis comes from Ablasa, he despaired from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He despaired from the mercy of Allah. Kept digging himself deeper and deeper and deeper in the hole. So the, the important thing here is to reverse course. 
That's the, the real essence of Tawbah is to reverse course, to try to reverse course. But don't lose hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Here's what Iblis does. Before you commit a sin, Shaytan tells you that Allah is most merciful and that you're an awesome person. After you commit the sin, Iblis tells you, your Shaytan tells you that Allah has no mercy and that you are a horrible human being. He breaks you down. So every time you're, you know, you're going to feel more and more incapable right, of breaking that sin. So what I would say is, at that point, if a person is committing the same sin over and over and over again, get people to keep you in check. Seeking help for your sin is not like boasting about your sin. We have a very, very, very uh, misconstrued understanding when it comes to uh, exposing your sins. Expo what Rasulullah talked about in terms of exposing your sins uh, and being punished for that is when a person proudly boasts of their sins. Allah shades him at night and then he brags about it in the daytime. But seeking help for a problem that you have, a legitimate problem, going to a person who you think can help you, going, you know, getting a, a, someone involved, a friend involved, someone, you know, that is not the same. Okay, that is not the same. So I tell people, all, look, if you've got a sin that's, that's hitting you over and over and over again, then seek help for it. You know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you, we go to a sheikh like a priest or something like that and try to get our istighfar through him, do seek forgiveness through him. What I'm saying is, you've got a friend that you really, really, really trust, and you tell him, look, I'm struggling with this, I need you to help me, I need you to call me out. You know, I need you to, to, to check up on me. I need your help. So, if that's the case, we need to get people involved, because you don't want to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with that sin. Um, and and break, break any attachment you have to that sin. They all, you know, there's a saying that if you're a recovering alcoholic, don't play pool in the bar. <laughs> Drug rehab. Don't put yourself in unnecessary contact with that sin over and over and over again. So try to break the, the contact between you and that sin. If there was an environment that allowed you to commit that sin, then you need to stay away from it. You need to try to make sure you get away from that environment. You try to put obstacles between you and that sin so that you don't go back to it. Alright, so I think inshallah ta'ala we're going to stop now. Jazakumullah khairan to all of you for coming out. Um, I'll, I'll answer the questions privately now inshallah. Subhanakallah, alhamdulillah, shalala, wa alaykum, astaghfirullah, wa alaykum, wa alaykum, wa alaykum, wa alaykum, wa alaykum, wa alaykum, wa alaykum,